Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and today I sit down with Maria Ressa to talk about press freedom in a time of COVID-19. Maria is a journalist and author in the Philippines, an outspoken critic of President Rodrigo Duterte, and one of the journalists recognized in 2018 as Times Person of the Year. Last year, she received a tribute honor from the Canadian Journalism Foundation for her powerful defense of truth in the face of daunting obstacles, including threats to her life. Maria, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I want to start, you were the lead investigative reporter in Southeast Asia for two decades with CNN. How did you begin a career in journalism? How did you follow down that path? By accident, <laughs> like a good Asian American or Filipino American, you know, I was I was pre-med. And then when I hated pre-med in school, I finished all the courses. Then I thought pre-law, you know, you do what your parents tell you. <laughs> um, but I graduated doing what I wanted, which was English uh, literature and trying to understand what the world was. And then I wanted to come back to the Philippines. I left the Philippines when I was 10 years old. When martial law was declared, my parents took us to the United States. So like Toronto, you know, I'm mixed. I'm an immigrant who has come home. Uh, I realized that I didn't really know what home was because while I was growing up in New Jersey, I never felt completely American. And then, you know, that pushed me. As soon as I graduated, I applied for a Fulbright so because I couldn't have afforded to come back to the Philippines any other way. I came home. And when I got here, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not really Filipino either. And I think that's the dilemma of multicultural folks, you know, what you feel. I feel most uh, Filipino when I'm with Americans, and I feel most American when I'm with Filipinos. <laughs> so I stumbled onto journalism because the fellow, the Fulbright that I got was actually for political theater in 1986. And that was when the People Power Revolt happened. And so I was, a, I had just graduated. I walked into what was then the government television station, which had just had a revolt, right? And I said, I know television. And then they let me direct newscasts. And wow. that's how I learned my culture. That's how I learned the Philippines because every, every video you roll, you have to know who that is, you know. And then I learned television as well. So it was incredible. It was empowering. And then I realized that I needed to form my own values. What are those values based on? And as I grew as a reporter, the standards and ethics of journalism, holding truth holding power to account, in search of the truth, looking for how to find justice. These are great big questions, and they somehow shaped who I became. And you spend two decades with CNN, and then you find your way to found Rappler, which you are now the CEO of. What, what is Rappler? So after I opened the Manila Bureau, I opened the Jakarta Bureau for CNN. And then when I decided to come home, I actually came home to head the largest uh, television multimedia news group, which is ABS-CBN. And that's important because ABS-CBN in 1972, uh, when it was shut down by then President Marcos, it was followed, that going black was followed by 21 years of a dictatorship. Just now on May 5th, ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster in the Philippines, you're not talking about one cable station, you're talking about the largest. Uh, when I was heading that news group, it was like $450 million in market cap. The largest news group was shut down, just shut down. They were pushed online. I did that for six years and then began Rappler. And, you know, we began Rappler because 
we could see that the old ways of thinking about journalism was quickly changing and it was not being changed by journalists. It was being changed by technology. And this is where we met, right? I began to see a technology as a massive enabler. At that point, I drank the Kool-Aid of, of <laughs> what it could do. You know, I thought Facebook, I mean, Rappler. So our mission was to build communities of action. And it started out as a Facebook page. It started as a Facebook page in 2011. And if Facebook search was good, we probably wouldn't have even created a website because what we were after was trying to understand how the information ecosystem works. And network analysis, Facebook social graph, actually, if you, which is what we did, if you can pull that down, you can get the information ecosystem of a country. So that was incredible. Just this little upstart, which started with 12 people, we're now 100 people, but we started with 12 people. Older folks like me, four or five of us above 40 at that point, I'm now in my late 50s, right? But uh, four or five of us above 40, and then the smartest 20-somethings we could find, because we knew we couldn't understand the digital, we're not digital natives. So be humble enough to know what you don't know, right? And in our first year and a half, we grew to become the third top online news site. And right now we're, I think part of the reason we came under attack is precisely because our largest demographic is that 18 to 35 years old, we're the top digital only site, news site in the Philippines. And we are just, when you put us in the entire ecosystem, we're just behind the two television stations, the largest ones, well, one is now shut down, and then the largest newspaper. And what was the rationale for shutting that the largest broadcaster in the country down? What's what's the government's rationale for that? I always talk about the erosion of democracy in the Philippines as death by a thousand cuts, uh, legal, a, le a veneer of legality. Uh, ABS-CBN's franchise must be renewed every 25 years by Congress, and its renewal came up. ABS-CBN uh, has been trying to renew this franchise since 2014. Right? And uh, in the, under this administration, when President Duterte came to office, he first attacked the largest newspaper, The Inquirer. Within two weeks, the owners of The Inquirer said they would sell it because they were slammed with, with legal cases. They also had other business interests. The second group that President Duterte attacked is ABS-CBN. And he threatened them then, this is back in 2016, he threatened them that he would not renew their franchise. Well, on May 4th, May 4th is when the franchise uh, ended without a renewal. Congress just sat on it. And uh, the NTC, uh, a regulatory body, gave them a cease and desist order. And on May 5th, they went black. Shocking to every wow. one of us. And Rappler presumably is still going strong. We're going strong, I think, for several reasons. You know, one is we're very stubborn. We're owned. We're the journalists have the power in Rappler. In fact, we have a shareholders agreement, which gives both editorial and business control to the journalists, right? We have no other business interests. And then the third part is, since we have no other business interests, this we know is a battle for the future of our democracy, and we hold the line. But having said that, you know, ABS-CBN shutdown uh, sends tremors, not just through the journalism community, through our entire society, because this is a giant, also economically. We've been in lockdown now. We're in week nine of a lockdown for the pandemic, right? But what happens when the markets open? There will be a ripple throughout. ABS-CBN employs, well, 
total in, ter in terms of both employees and contractual workers, about 11,000 workers. That's also massive. Um, it's the largest in the Philippines. So we wait and see, right? And it's not the first attack on journalism in the Philippines. You yourself and Rappler have faced this. And what is it that you were reporting on that drew the ire of Duterte? He challenged impunity. And the first level was impunity in the drug war, a drug war that is extremely brutal, that is used to sow fear and kill people. You know, as of December last year, the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines and the United Nations said that at least 27,000 people have been killed since the beginning of this drug war. So what we did is we kept count of the numbers. And when the police or the government changes the numbers, we pull them back to it. Because we did that, we the second level of impunity is the information operations, the way government and its proxies are manipulating public opinion through Facebook, right? This is the irony. So we challenged impunity, not just of the government, but of Facebook. You have to understand in the Philippines, Facebook is essentially our internet. 100% of Filipinos, there are 110 million Filipinos, um, and there are at least 70 million on the internet, right? 100% of those Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. Facebook is our internet. So when it does not police, when it doesn't do the gatekeeping role of policing the public sphere, when lies laced with anger and hate become facts, when it polarizes our society, a country with weak institutions, we feel it immediately. And uh, you know, you talked about our problems. Well, so we we did these stories in 2016, Facebook's impact on democracy, for one, the brutal drug war. By 20, we, the attacks on social media began in 2016 against us. A new weapon against journalists, uh, you know, having to field 90 hate messages per hour. That's kind of drastic, right? Incre and the psychological effect. I had to send our folks to counseling and the counselors didn't even know how to do that because it was so new. So beyond that, a year later, the same attacks. So the online attacks are like fertilizer. And then those online attacks came out of President Duterte's own mouth a year later in 2017. A week later, we had our first subpoena. In 2018, uh, we were slammed with 11 cases and investigations. And then in 2019, I was, uh, in order to stay free, I had to post bail eight times. I was still arrested twice and detained, right? So I really know about the erosion of freedoms. I've done nothing any differently from what I used to do as a CNN correspondent. It's the same standards and ethics of journalism. And with respect to the continued brutal war on drugs, I, I watched a do documentary, Hot Docs, here in Toronto that covered the, the extent of the brutality, but also the chilling remarks that the president will make to dehumanize people who use drugs. And has that brutal war continued unabated? And are people aware of, of the scale of, of this? So after the reporting, what happened is that because at the beginning, it was so brazen and you had a new new police commanders who were torn between reporting the numbers for their superiors as to show progress. Right. That, so they reported deaths and then they realized if they reported the deaths as is, then they would be clobbered by human rights groups. So then they began switching the numbers. Right. So we watched this. And what they did in response is then they hid the numbers 
And then after that, after the outcry in, in Metro Manila, then it moved to the provinces. I always talk about the three C's, corrupt, coerce, co-op. And I think what you've seen is this gradual erosion and kind of like creating new normals when you accept these types of, you know, damocles sword on reporting. But yes, it continues. And, you know, we reported while the lockdowns are happening, we certainly can't go out in the streets. There are curfews, there are barricades. Police now are wearing military uniforms, right? So it's hard to tell what's happening right now. But what we can tell is exactly how the government is reacting to a virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it's so interesting. I, I wrote this for Time magazine, right? President Duterte on April 1, he was prone to long late night ramblings, which have since you know, been edited and they air it the next day now. But at that point when it was live, he's, he warned quarantine violators. And he told the police that if anyone violated quarantine, he told them to direct quote, shoot them dead. That's April 1. And wow. on April 2, a 63-year-old farmer who was stopped at a checkpoint for not wearing a mask, the police report said he was drunk and that he was carrying a bolo. So apparently the police who filed the report felt that it was important to shoot him dead because they did. And there was another instance, very high profile, where another gentleman was shot. And this gentleman happened to be a retired military officer. So that blew up. We can see the erosion in the ideas of human rights and maximum restraint of our law enforcement. When Ferdinand Marcos had a 21-year dictatorship, it took a decade after 1986, from 1986 to 1996, to bring back concepts of human rights into our law enforcement. All of that has deteriorated really quickly, and I, I fear, I don't know how long it will take to bring these ideas back in operation. And the pandemic might make it even harder to bring these ideas back as we see, certainly in our country, we see the prime minister from my party, he's much more popular now than he was before. We see that Doug Ford, the premier, a conservative premier who was somewhat unpopular previously, is now quite popular in the course of the pandemic. It seems in the pandemic, but really moments of crisis writ more broadly that leaders, people are more deferential to their leaders. And that presents real challenges in a country like yours, where there are human rights violations from those in charge. And now there's a pandemic and, and potential deference and a willingness maybe to, to give up some of those rights. Yeah, absolutely. Power gets more power. You know, again, let's look, this virus, it's extraordinary times, right? And extraordinary times require these extraordinary measures. And Filipinos, including me, we are okay to go into voluntary lockdown because this is necessary. It's a life and death. Let's talk about Facebook after this, right? This is a time when we will voluntarily give it. And our Congress did. When President Duterte asked for emergency powers, all-encompassing powers, right? Uh, not just in terms of, of who controls what, but money powers. Within 24 hours, our Congress gave him the powers. And on March 24th, he signed this very broad law, which at the last minute had uh, an article, it's Section 6F, inserted which is a fake news law, essentially giving giving the government the power to question anyone. It curtails freedom of speech. It curtails a teacher was just arrested yesterday for threatening President Duterte on social media. 
yesterday on Facebook, right? So we have several of these instances now. That's in the law. I, I think the danger that we all were looking at, and I warned about this, is that you know, you have to make sure that these types of laws have an expiration date. And at least for the Philippines, every three months, this will be assessed again by Congress. But look at what's happened in this time period. It would have been unthinkable for ABS-CBN to have been shut down in a democracy. The context of the pandemic, of the virus, that shut down the kind of legality, the taking the the ending of the franchise and then sticking to the letter of the law and shutting them down. Well, you put this in the context of nightly curfews, of barricades around the streets, of the lack of freedom of movement, and you have the same conditions of martial law that we had in 1972. I just hope that, I guess what we do now matters and we're constrained by fear. Fear of the virus, fear of President Duterte and our government and the police. So it's a difficult time period. And I'm not the first person who said this. We really get the government we deserve. And that's the vigilant part of citizenship, right? If we accept this, then this is what Filipinos want. And maybe I should think about it, right? How, yeah. how much no. will we fight for the Constitution? Though all the more reason to double down on your journalistic efforts and to hold that power to account. And yet you also run into the roadblock where the government has tried to very actively stifle those efforts. So you have been arrested for cyber libel, obviously politically motivated. Where does that trial stand? My lawyer for that case is a former Supreme Court spokesman, and he said this is the, the fastest trial he's ever seen. In about eight months, it was ready for a decision. And the, it's called promulgation. The promulgation date was set for April 3rd. We had a lockdown, so all courts were closed. Uh, and then uh, it was reset for April 24th. We're still in lockdown. So silver lining for me, I guess, is that, you know, it's been postponed indefinitely. And I, I was hoping that the fact that the government, actually now, the government must work. This is really an enemy that requires a whole of society approach, right? So they can't, I was hoping that they wouldn't be, that the executive would then focus on the virus instead of perceived enemies like journalists and that our judiciary would be able to be more independent. I don't know now what to think with ABS-CBN. It really makes you rethink everything. You said when the trial began in July of 2019, this case of cyber libel stretches the rule of law until it breaks. And I take it you are, when that decision is rendered, you are not all that optimistic about the outcome of the decision then? Hard to say. You know, there are four founders of Rappler, and uh, we have a bet amongst ourselves, two against two. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, you know, the only way to deal with this is really to laugh. It's kind of gallows humor, right? It's insane that I've been charged with, with, with violating a law that wasn't even in place when we published the story. That's just crazy. But look, beyond me, ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster, is shut down. It's, again, a legal veneer. And that is the kind of, that's the tip of the arrow of the Duterte administration. And it's the office of the Solicitor General, uh, the Solicitor General Kalida, who really thinks through these things. Um, They were able to get rid of a chief justice of the Supreme Court. She's just been erased, Quo Waranto. So I guess 
anything is possible, right? And which is part of the reason I'm at this 50-50 stage. I really feel now it is up to Filipinos and it's a tough time for it to be in the hands of civic society because people really are afraid. We don't know, right? You can't even meet people. So there's where is civil society in the age of Zoom, right? I don't know. I think this is a problem, not just in the Philippines, but globally. I've always felt the reason why we were at, I met you at the, the hearing was because these cheap armies on social media had rolled back democracy in so many countries around the world. I think more than at any time, in, we know that information is power. And when a company like Facebook, like YouTube, like Twitter, when these companies cross across all the different countries and cultures and unite us, information operations, it started not in our country, but the first time in 2014 was Russia against the Ukraine, right? When these things happen globally and they, like a virus, <laughs> like the virus, it affects us the most. And in our cases, if Facebook, doesn't move faster in the time of pandemic, lies will kill and have. So I'm hoping they have stepped up to the plate. Social media. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, it's, it's interesting because we did meet in June in Ottawa. You, you received uh, an award from a, a Canadian Journalist Association at the same time. And that conversation seems to have helped continue efforts at Facebook and, and with other tech giants to move more quickly to tackle disinformation in this pandemic. Hopefully those efforts continue beyond the pandemic. And yet it still must be incredibly difficult in your role at Rappler to combat that kind of misinformation, disinformation online, while also combating the misinformation, disinformation coming from the halls of power. They've conflated. They're the same thing, right? I spent a weekend now uh, because they were prepared for the shutdown of ABS-CBN. They were out in force this weekend and I was part, I got roped into the attacks and the attacks were far more vicious than, than the vicious attacks I had been subjected to in 2016, 2017 during my arrests. Um, it's a tough world. It is really tough to hold power to account now. And I think that the gatekeepers, the new gatekeepers, the, the tech platforms, they don't understand how tough it is because only you know the attacks. That's how personalized it is, right? And the, and the followers of those accounts. And it's like mob rule all the time. And holding the line requires not just tremendous courage, but just you have to keep track of what, why you're doing it. Having said that, here's a silver lining the social media platforms have taken down content, like finally, right? They know they have the gatekeeping powers and they've taken down Bolsonaro. They've taken down Rudy Giuliani. They've taken down, they've moved into these areas because these lies can kill right, during this time period. Well, I think hopefully we will be able to press that and push that you know, people like me, the frontliners of journalists, the journalists and the activists who are under constant attack, that we need these types of protection as well, and that they move beyond the virus to the political disinformation. The, the difficulty here, and, and I think we talked about this during the hearing, the difficulty, of course, is that this also brings them money, right? And then they must take political positions, which journalists have always done. It's not a political position. It's truth. You protect the facts. 
well, they really should take this into account now. I think the other thing we need to think about for them is how do we align the incentives so that they're rewarded for doing the right thing? Because all the financial incentives are, are helping them do the wrong thing. And this is where it comes to men and women like you. What kind of regulations can we put in place that will allow the power of technology to become an enabler again and not something that creates a dystopia? It's funny. There are so many different aspects of this conversation, but I, I just had the Minister of Heritage at our industry committee, and I asked about what Australia is doing and what France is doing because for these large tech giants, they are, of course, a gatekeeper to the truth in, in some ways, but they also profit to a significant degree from news content that they have no hand in creating or producing. And so there absolutely has to be a greater equity and profit sharing as between these big, largely Facebook and Google, frankly, where that's the bulk of the digital ad revenue in today's age. There needs to be greater sharing as between those giants and news media that is producing the content that we so desperately need and which civil society depends on and which if the Philippines is to have civil society rise up in some way and to demand greater accountability and to roll back some of the really atrocious, brutal powers that Duterte has employed and then the drug war just as one example, I mean, it will, that, those actions will depend upon a really strong civic media. Absolutely. And that's the other compounding problem of the virus of this pandemic, right? Because if you think about it, all of our economies, the global economy, we have never lived through anything like this. Once we all emerge from lockdown, it is not the same world. The world will never be the same again. But this is, I'm not the first to say this, an extinction level event for medium size and perhaps even some of the largest news groups. Because uh, let's take the case of Rappler, right? Like right now, as soon as the lockdown was put in place, the first thing I had to do was make sure our cash flow was there. And most companies in the United States would have maybe a month's cash flow. Right now, we have to have at least three months. And the reason we can survive this is because we prepared for worst case scenarios uh, with the attacks of government. So all of those preparations made us very resilient in this time period. But all of the donors and the philanthropists are, are trying to get together to figure out how they're going to deal with the impact of the pandemic on the business of news and independent journalism. That's a problem that we will face once we come out of here. And it's, it's not something that we can forego in a democracy. Yes, you can't because, and, and here's a perfect example. As this is all happening, we have to figure out how to evolve journalism because when all the numbers are coming from governments, right, that's really what it is. How do we hold these governments to account? So what do journalists do? They have the audacity to look for leading indicators that may go against what the government is saying. That's important. That's called checks and balance, right? Check and balance always. Nothing corrupts like absolute power, right? We know this. So I, I, I think as we evolve this, I, I choose to, again, always look at the bright side because we must, because then we should just close up, right? <laughs> the bright side is this. Evolution of journalism means that we will be more responsive. Uh, the journalists are up to the challenge of holding power to account. The next step that we're doing is that we must make sure our businesses survive this. That's a different half. And the attacks, strangely enough, the government attacks have made us much, much stronger to deal with the pandemic. So I, I think, you know, what's that? Uh, was it who quoted this? Is it 
what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's right. And, and it's a conversation we're having in Canada to some extent when we look at effectively bailing out news media. Even before this crisis, we saw a hollowing out of civic journalism and there's government funding that is trying to... Yeah, there's some I'm jealous. ...local civic journalism <laughs> initiatives. But some of the challenges we face is that we are largely looking to fund a status quo rather than encouraging innovation, encouraging startups, encouraging new journalism startups that are thinking differently and doing things differently, and maybe will be more resilient in the end uh, as, as we continue to live our lives online. I, I had to ask too, I, I wasn't sure what this kind of work entails, but you are also now involved with an initiative from Reporters Without Borders, the Information and Democracy Commission, and I wonder what that is. So there are 25 of us from 18 different countries, and uh, we started working together to think about the values of technology. That's really critically important because if you don't know what your values are, then you can build Frankenstein. And that's precisely, I think, what's happened, right? So that's the end goal of that. What are the values and ethics? If tech guys are having a problem dealing with finding their values and ethics, here we here it is. And at, at this <laughs> point, and there are tech people in, in this. It was really, really fantastic for me to get together and to think it through with these folks. And right now I'm told uh, that Christophe Delors said that there are 36 countries that have signed on to this now. So the end goal of the Information and Democracy Commission is really to realize that information and democracy goes hand in hand. And technology is an important enabler for all of this now in, our, in this day and age. Tech needs to have values. And there have to be penalties if they violate the law. So actually, this commission, I hope, is something that will help your work. And we try to go cross-country because, again, it's a free press in the West and your institutions are extremely strong. But the brunt of the effects of technology where the decisions of Silicon Valley kill people are in the global South. And every day that no action is taken, someone dies. It's that dire for us. Without question, we are lucky in Canada and in Western democracies to have strong institutions overall, but I think we're all reminded when we look south of the border here just how fragile those institutions are at the same time and how hardworking we have to be to continue to bolster those, strengthen those, and to uphold those, those values. Now, you have already helped us in many respects by attending and participating in the international hearing that we hosted in June. I imagine your work on the Information and Democracy Commission will help that conversation further. Are there ways that parliamentarians like myself, that the government of Canada can assist when we see human rights abuses, when we see the undermining of the rule of law or undermining of the independent free press in the Philippines? Are there ways that we can assist here in Canada? I think Canada is, you know, becoming the beacon now. I know that you will find fault. Everyone finds fault with everything. But frankly, uh, Canada and Britain the two are the two countries that first spoke up about press freedom. I'm shocked that it took that long, right? But uh, your your deputy prime minister uh, was then foreign minister, and she, along with uh, with the UK, I guess this was a London gathering, uh, defend media freedom. That is important, and 
if no one is talking about the values, if no one is championing the values, if no one is holding the governments to account, right? You have stood up against Saudi Arabia. You, so uh, the fact that I'm talking to you, you know, thank you. More power. Please keep doing that. We need to. We need to encourage the best of humanity, not its worst. And I, I always talk about this. It's like after World War II, I think the entire world came together and we all agreed that, that we need to protect humanity from itself. And that's where we came out with NATO, with, the, with Bretton Woods, with the UN Declaration on Human Rights. Right? And that's kind of because we all said this is a threat. This is us. Well, today the equivalent of an atom bomb has gone off, but it is so insidious that we've been caught unawares. So I, I hope Canada will lead the charge. My lawyer, I hope, who will keep me out of jail, Amal <laughs> Clooney, is, is, the, is working with, that, with uh, Canada and the UK on this. She's the special envoy and she's the deputy for the legal, the high-level legal panel. And I learn a lot from her and I, I realize a lot more about the kind of connective tissue between journalism and what you do and how this is a process of democracy. It's, it's wonderful to see. And again, like, I wish that we had more of it here. Well, I certainly will stay in touch. And if there's any way that we can continue to work together to bolster press freedom in your country and to continue the conversation about values, I think it's a really important conversation to emphasize values in our lives online and, and how we ensure that those who are profiting so much from our living our lives online are abiding by those values that we hold so dear. So I really appreciate all of your work and I hope that coin flip goes in your favor uh, when the decision is ultimately made and I'll be following it very closely. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Thanks, of course, for Maria's time. You can follow her work at rappler.com. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes, and you can reach me online at BEYNate.